This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. In our last session today, we get to see how it all comes together in the mind of an investment professional who thinks about these things deeply. And with, with that, I'm going to be handing over to my colleague Rob in our Cape Town studio to take us through that. Well, thank you very much, Amy. And those kind words are not referring to my mind, obviously, we're referring to the mind of our next guest, William Patterson. So in this session, we'd like to showcase the application of behavioral science within an investment firm. William Patterson is a co-founder of our Devra Asset Management, which is a boutique investment firm based in London that has adopted behavioral science and embedded it within their culture of the way they invest. They're looking to leverage the errors of judgment made by a number of people that are actors within the equity market around the world. Now, they have identified three distinct groups of people that they believe have show human bias in the way they go about investing or applying their mindset in, in the equity market. Now, the first of those groups is business leaders or CEOs of companies that are listed on stock markets around the world. And they tend to be a bit prone to overconfidence. They've been egotistical, over-optimistic and they tend to infect people with their overconfidence and uh, over-optimism about their own companies. The uh, second group are investment analysts or equity analysts that we that we'd like to refer to them. And these are people that are looking to spend all their time researching companies that are listed on markets around the world and providing a buy, hold or sell recommendation and forming an opinion based on their, their deep work in understanding a business fund's fundamentals and what they think it should be worth. And then the final group is investors. So this group is people who are putting money to work in that equity market around the world. And that could be from a group of individual investors like yourself and, and me, or it could be all the way up to huge wealth funds that are controlling huge amounts of capital around the world. And all of us display certain biases. Now, within our DEVRA, they seek to identify and exploit examples of these biases that are evident in the market. And so what I'd like to do now is welcome Bill. Good morning, Bill, and thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me along. So we'll talk a bit more about the investment process in a moment. But what I'd like to begin with is just giving a bit of history about how you came to, or you yourself and Jeremy, who you founded our Devra with, how you came to focus on behavior within the markets and how that led you to form our Devra Asset Management and the investment process that you apply. Yeah, Jeremy and I uh, were very lucky that we joined James Cable Fund Managers on the same day back in September of 1986. And that was just a sort of quirk of fate, I suppose. We got on very well and we enjoyed working together. And the other aspect where we were very lucky was we started working for a man who had been, he'd worked in industry and was also an academic. So he was very unusual in the context of the city of London. And the third bit of luck we had was HSBC had just taken over the firm back in 1986 as a result of the deregulation going on in the city of London 
called Big Bang. And uh, the person who ran North American equities was unhappy with the takeover and left. And our boss was basically too mean to employ someone else to do the job. So he let us have a go from a, a worryingly early age. And obviously, we had no idea what we were doing. But there's nothing like starting early with someone keeping an eye on you to learn. And I, I emphasize what is really interesting about learning is when you get things wrong. And that, I would say, is more interesting than when you get things right. And the other reason that we were lucky was our boss had what was known strangely back then as an investment process. And an investment process back in the 80s in London was a relatively rare beast. I would suggest that investment back then was more about networking and who you knew rather than maybe what you knew. So it was a genuinely a very different world. But our our boss had a very strong opinion with his academic background that we should have an investment process. It was basically a value type growth at a reasonable price type of process. It wasn't particularly magical, but an integral part of it was having the discipline to focus on certain sorts of stocks with certain characteristics. And a distillation of the value side would be, in effect, trying to buy other people's anxiety. And that was a process based on some of the academic work that was more available in coming out of the States than London, I would say. So we grew up in a world of an investment process at a time when it was unusual. We were allowed a surprising amount of freedom to try out what we were learning. Uh, and the power of making mistakes is is invaluable, I think, in becoming a, a good fund manager. But the process did not work all the time, which is no great surprise. And as, as time rolled by, we became increasingly interested in, if I can put it this way, the role of how expect changing expectations affect human behavior and what it means for share prices. And we did our own work from that. But that basically is the, if you like, the origin of where Jeremy and I started. And 35 years later, we are still working together because, as I said, we enjoy working together, but we find the whole subject fascinating. And we find uh, managing money a very stimulating and challenging and exciting enterprise. Thank you. And and obviously, all of those pieces of learning came together when you founded Ardeva in, in 2010. And, and a lot of the narrative that you begin with when you're trying to explain your process is that you don't trust CEOs. And you go a bit further than that, which maybe I'll let you explain. But can you talk to us about the, your base assumptions behind your, your, your view or your opinion towards CEOs in general? Uh, yes, it's probably worth having a quick bit of background to the context of our looking at CEOs. When we left James Capel, we went to a, a, another firm where we focused on setting up funds which looked at trying to exploit the anxiety I've re I referred to briefly, which is in effect trying to find value opportunities in the market. Uh, and we also looked at trying to understand the behavior of analysts and how they interpret new information, and which gives you an opportunity to identify growth. So we ran, we ran a mixture of funds, but if you like, intellectually, they were rooted in pure value style and a pure growth style. And those funds we ran for over 10 years did quite well, but they were quite volatile. Uh, and it struck us that the volatility was something that we needed to understand in more depth and more detail. And after many years of thinking about this and observing when we seem to get things right and wrong, we were forced to conclude that we were not understanding deeply enough 
I suppose it's basically risk in the purest sense in the context of how a firm is managed. Uh, and you might say it's a bit incompetent to spend the first 15 years of your working career not working out the risk is important. But it took us a long time to really think deeply about risk and in particular the context of risk around management behavior and specifically the actions and behavior of chief executive officers. And the more we looked at it and the more we looked at what academic literature was out there in terms of trying to understand the behavior characteristics of chief executives, we were forced to conclude that the CEOs of companies had a major flaw in their behavior, which was they were prone to just taking too much risk. And this led us to the slightly cynical conclusion that there wasn't really such a thing as good management or bad management. We were forced to conclude fairly cynically, as I say, that all the default setting for management and CEOs in particular is to take too much risks. And the, the reason for that, in our opinion, is that the, the kind of person who becomes in charge of a large publicly quoted vehicle and those characteristics which get him or her to the top of that company, which tend to be aggressive, very self-confident attributes where you're not inter interested really in other people's opinions and you certainly don't want to be told you are wrong. Those characteristics which get you to the top of the, the tricky corporate ladder and to the top of the prize at the top of a firm are not the characteristics that generally make a good CEO, where you need to listen to people, be more realistic about balancing risks and more accepting of the fact that you are quite likely to be wrong, which means you do need to change. So our opinion was that basically CEOs had this problem that they were hardwired to take too much risk. And therefore, our default setting was that all companies were basically risky because of the growth plans which the CEO were pursuing. And the trouble is, if you have a person with characteristics such that I've described, there's also an added problem that CEOs tend to be encouraged with their risk-taking activities by the, the world they live in. Remuneration structures tend to be focused around short-term payoffs. There is a de facto deal with your shareholders. Most shareholders want you to grow your business. And so there is a license to go for growth because that's in effect what shareholders want. So the three characteristics of the pay, the shareholder attitude, and the natural tendency to take too much risk from the CEO means that the chances are that business will take too much risk. So from our point of view, we are very much, we start the investment process, as you quite rightly say, Rob, by looking at the behavior of CEOs. We take the view that all companies will take too much risk if they can get away with it. So what we are interested in are the conditions that that company faces. And in particular, we are looking for companies where they are, the conditions allow them or force them not to take too much risk. So the, the, the phrase of risk and reward is very easy to trot out in the world of investment. My issue with it is that most people, I think, put reward first. If you talk to people in all financial markets, they tend to obsess about the opportunity of an investment, how much money you might make from something before they think about the risk. And the trouble with that is once you have focused on the reward side of that simple equation, you are basically emotionally hardwired into thinking about that. And I don't think you have a 
a dispassionate analysis of the risk, which means you tend to get that balance wrong, which is why we are very strict on ourselves by considering risk in all companies first before we consider reward. And if a company looks too risky to us, we won't even consider reward. It's not it's then not an issue. Um, so coming back to your question, yes, we focus on the behavior of CEOs. We think they are hardwired to take too much risk. We look for the conditions which allow them to behave themselves in effect and can basically still be a bit of a hero without taking too much risk before we then look at the behavior of analysts or investors to work out if there is some reward which we think is acceptable in the context of our portfolios. And uh, you actually go a bit further than that in, in, in that you won't you intend not to speak to CEOs of businesses because you think you might they might infect you in some way or another. So and, and again, you mentioned it just then. It's about the conditions that are are there or in place that don't allow the CEOs to take additional risk or excessive risk to to push the businesses forward. So my next question is that there tends to be two generic corporate circumstances or conditions that you look for when you're when you're seeking to identify investment opportunities. That's when growth is unusually easy and therefore the, the management don't need to take additional risk or when the management have lost all credibility and they're not allowed to take additional risk, whether that's by shareholders or the market in general. Would you just elaborate a bit further on that, on those concepts of those two conditions? The growth and the value. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I'll, it's worth just picking up on what you said there about not meeting management, which is I'm very aware that that makes us different from most other people. And we if you take the view that we do, that management tend to take too much risk. In our view, the last people you want to meet are the management and certainly not the CEO. One of the reasons they're there is because they're very persuasive. That's one of the reasons they got to the top. So they're extremely good at believing their own story and selling that story. And we're humans like everyone else. So if you want to distance yourself from the bias of believing what they talk about, it's very important you don't meet them, in our opinion, in the context of our investment process. But I do appreciate for many other people who have different investment processes, that's an integral part of what they do. That's an in, interesting, it's an interesting comment, having heard what Paul Dolan said earlier about our need for stories. Yeah, it's, but the, the world revolves around stories. Narrative is, is extremely powerful which is why it's dangerous to meet any salesman in any field and walk of life, as we all know. So, uh, but coming back to your point about the conditions for growth, we think there are basically two conditions which are interesting for us in terms of identifying growth stops. And it comes back to those conditions where management, they're basing that condition where they can grow without taking too much risk. And the first one is where conditions are relatively benign for a company and, and a company can grow without taking too much risk. Uh, and they don't happen particularly often, but they are out there. And you would say pharmaceutical companies probably in the 60s and 1970s were able to grow for a long period of time without taking too much risk because there were new drugs coming on the market. Zantac for ulcers in relation to GlaxoSmithKline is an easy one. You've had 20 years of selling a product around the world. So management could look like heroes, but not take a lot of risk. So if the whole thing was unusually in balance with that industry, actually. 
Chocolate is probably a good example today. If you're a pure chocolate company, chocolate is, chocolate is a great product. It's only it's mildly addictive. It's not particularly expensive, and most people like it. So you can keep selling chocolate around the world if you're a Linton Sprungly without taking a huge amount of risk. So it's that sort of what we call benign growth opportunity. The other area where we think companies can grow is those conditions where companies have, if you like, what we call a long path and long runway to growth, a bit like the chocolate example, where analysts underestimate how long, how unusual a company might be and how long that growth might last for. In our experience, and also if you look at the academic work, the analysts who the analysts are extremely smart people. They're, as you said at the beginning, they're the experts who understand companies very well. They talk to the companies, they make the forecasts. The, one of the problems for analysts is by, by the fact they're extremely smart people, smart people are very good at being absolutely sure they're still right when they're slightly wrong. And the trouble is the world is not as simple as most spreadsheets would have you believe. And modeling is not quite the, the perfect solution that we would like it to be. And the life is surprisingly volatile and random. And when that comes along, most forecasts tend to be a little bit wrong. And there's very clear evidence that the two things we as human beings struggle with is when something is unusual and different, we, we find it difficult to work out what the consequences of that are. And if something is genuinely different and unusual and doing something better than the competition, that company can grow for a surprisingly long period of time. So if you've got one difference and unusual something going on, which means you can surprise for a long period of time, these are the perfect conditions for analysts to be caught out for a long time, which tends to mean earnings forecasts tend to go up a lot more than expected over a meaningful period of time. And that is a very powerful cocktail for the share price over a long period. I mean, a, an example that springs to mind, which most people will have probably heard of, is the French, French luxury goods company Hermes, which is an interesting business. I, it's quite a traumatic company for anyone like me who's looked in one of their shops at a going through an airport because everything looks terrifyingly expensive. But I'm a you know I'm a middle aged bloke. So, but for, but they sell a lot of fantastic products around the world. And they tap into something that's very powerful with people. They have a long history. The company's nearly 200 years old. It has its roots in saddlery, making leather goods, particularly for horses and carriages. In fact, the, the company logo is an old ducal horse and carriage from the, 18, from the 19, early 19th century. They've built up a very powerful business. They're still controlled by the family, which means they have a long-term focus on the way they manage the business. They have deep, complicated supply chains which are many multi-decade and in many cases, many generations long of supplying the kit that goes into the products they make. They have a very powerful marketing bit of machinery which makes the products, whether it's a smart little handbag or a silk scarf, very, very desirable for people around the world. So they have a product that people really want. They control the pricing so it's never sold cheaply in a sale. They have a market which is steadily growing around the world. Lots more people despite the pandemic, are getting gently better off and more wealthy. So they have a brand that is highly desirable. And so they have this incredibly long runway of growth. So we are forced to conclude that this is an unusual business, which is well managed, which at the moment doesn't have to take unnecessary risks because of the way their business is set up and the opportunity they have long term around the world. So what that means is you have analysts who mostly understand it's a good business. They mostly understand the reasons why it's a good business, 
but they don't extend the, they don't understand the depth of how unusual it is in the context of what it means for the long-term ability to grow. And those that combination of factors is a very powerful driver of the share price. It's not going to go up every year, but over the long term it tends to do well. So those those sort of conditions are very powerful, and those are typically the conditions we look for when we look for growth companies. Good businesses, which are being sensibly managed because the conditions allow management not to take too much risk, and there is a long runway for growth because the business is genuinely unusual. But you shouldn't kid yourself that there are a lot of businesses like that out there. It is difficult to be unusual. Okay, thank you. And then the other area would be recovering value. Yeah, the recovering value, that's an interesting one. This looks much more at the behavior of investors, people like you and me. Um, so the growth is looking at the behavior of analysts, the industry experts, and that the bias there is people's reluctance to, people are slow to react when conditions change, as I say, because we're very good at convincing ourselves we're still right. When we look at the behavior of investors, you have a very different and interesting dynamic going on in our opinion. And it taps into the thing that Jeremy and I learned 35 years ago, which was, are you brave enough to buy other people's anxiety? Human beings are emotional beasties. We all get upset. We all get overexcited. Um, if there's a lot of bad news in a short period of time, we get very upset. And so the COVID crisis of the last year is a perfect, perfect example for this. It's genuinely a once in a lifetime experience, I think, for most people in the terms of the scale and the, the angst that's being caused by this. So you can see why it uh, provides the conditions for a lot of deep trauma in markets and stocks around the whole world. And what we do as human beings is we basically extrapolate, extrapolate the short-term trauma. We basically put that on, term, on top of the stocks. And you will, we will all have seen these in the last year, companies seeing their share prices completely collapse. And they are, relatively speaking, the obvious ones where the trauma is felt most obviously and most deeply. So any, anything to do with travel, air travel, holidays, leisure, hotels, going to the pub, having a drink, all the things that we've not been allowed to do, all that have been proved very difficult, have been very difficult. Well, basically, the industries have just shut down, which means companies have been on life support, analysts have been extremely concerned, investors have been deeply traumatized, share prices have collapsed. It's not a complicated background. But when we come to process that as investors, we have to work out whether that trauma is going to stay around for a long time, whether it's relatively short-lived and whether it will pass and what it means for those companies. The trouble is when you're in the, in the depths of that traumatic event, it's very difficult to see a way out of it. If anyone who turns on the news or reads a paper just sees more and more angst. So as an investor, it's very hard to gauge where the balance of risk and reward is. So from our point of view, we are attracted to companies which have seen significant trauma in terms of their share price collapsing. We are more interested, if I'm being honest, in anxiety as seen through a share price than in some, if you like, mathematical definition of value, because what attracts us is other people's anxiety. We will use that as the, if you like, the door through which we open, go open to, to try and look at a company to see whether that company is still a good business or whether it really is in trouble. The critical thing for us is whether management realize they are, they are in a difficult situation and need to do something to get out of it. You might be a very strong business like a Marriott Hotels, which has a basically a very powerful business model. And as long as it's got the cash to see its way through the crisis, they will survive and they will almost certainly do well because smaller competitors will go to the wall. But 
the, the interesting companies for us in terms of changing management behavior, which is a very powerful catalyst for us, is when you have a company which finally faces up to the problem it faces and does something about it. And the interesting thing about the conditions of the last year is because there's been so much trauma, it has provided, if you like, a sort of smokescreen for a lot of analysts, for a lot of companies to finally get around to trying to solve the problems they have because they can blame it on the environment and not their own incompetence. So uh, an example of the, one of the stocks we have in the portfolio today would be the car maker Renault, actually another French business, which the French have a, as most of us are aware, they have a fairly strategic approach to many of their important large industries. There's a lot of, I would say, quasi-state backing. It becomes a bit murky as to who's really in control. And the history of Renault is, I would say, a sort of state champion in providing cars to basically sell around the world and push the Renault brand with sort of France in the background. The trouble is for the poor old shareholder, it's not been a particularly successful strategy. You've tended to come last when the rewards are handed out. And so I think they have, Renault have finally worked out, particularly in the last year with the crisis in the auto industry, where people just haven't been buying cars for the obvious reasons. They really need to do something before they go bust because the French government can't keep bailing them out. Last year, a new chief executive arrived in a very simple sense. They've used his arrival and the COVID crisis to come up with a new business strategy, which in a simple sense is basically to focus on quality and price and profitability rather than volume. It's not a complicated strategy, but it's strategically a very different one to, if you like, the semi-state-backed strategy of the past. And this is an interesting situation for us because you've got a new chief executive. He seems to be behaving sensibly because he is forced in the conditions to lower the risk in the business. They've got a change of business plan, which seems to us to make sense. And critically, you still have a lot of anxiety, firstly, in terms of the share price, which has done extremely badly over the last year, although it's starting to recover, but it's done badly over a large number of years. And you have a lot of anxiety in the analysts, and they are very skeptical about the ability of the new CEO to turn that company around. So for us, there's an interesting cocktail of ingredients. You've got evidence of clear trauma. You've got a background for change. You've got the new CEO, which is actually making a change. And you've still got a lot of, a lot of anxiety in the share price at the same time as skepticism with the analysts. We may or may not be wrong. So we may or not be right in our opinion on Renault, but it has an interesting set of conditions, which to us suggests the share price is more likely to go up than go down. So that's a quick whiz through the world of value seen through the anxiety of investors. Thank you, Bill. And, and you, you mentioned something yesterday that was very interesting to me is that they're tapping into the emotional, the emotional aspect of CO2 emissions and their transition to, or say they've stated that they'll be at 65% EV vehicles by I think it was 2025, which was well ahead of any of their competitors. It's something that I guess, you, you know, again, it's tapping into that emotional nature of of a movement that's happening around the world. Um, yeah, I think it's quite all, clever. All, all car companies now going down this path that they've made, they've mm. made a, clearly made a serious commitment to go in this direction. And I think it helps when you've got a new CEO who hasn't got the legacy of the previous strategy holding him back. So generally, you can't trust CEOs, so don't talk to them. But there are investment opportunities out there if you can find sensibly managed businesses due to the conditions. Yep. And what you need to identify is where analysts 
underestimate how something good is or where yeah. investors overestimate how bad something is. So yeah. just I'm just going to conclude by drawing our attention to Ardevra. So oh. what makes you special? Uh, how oh. are you able to avoid bias, given that you know so much about it? Well, I would say the first thing is there's nothing nothing makes us special. We're we're just as fallible as everyone else. And the only the only thing that I would say that helps us deal with deal with this is uh, we are aware that we will make a lot of mistakes uh, and there is nothing special about us. So I think one of the in, one of the key aspects of surviving as a fund manager and doing a good job is you need to accept your own limitations. We've been well aware of this for you know over 30 years as to how difficult it is to do this. We have a process that tries to exploit the behavior of other people and tries to understand why smart people tend to make bad decisions in certain circumstances. So for us, we have a framework around ourselves which tries to minimize the damage caused when we do make mistakes. Because as I say, we will definitely make a lot of mistakes. So the key from a portfolio management point of view is to limit the damage when you make those mistakes. So we have a very careful process, which I've briefly described, which starts by looking at risk before it looks at reward. I think that's an important part of controlling the overall risk within a portfolio. We are carefully structured around big geographical blocks. So we're not taking, if you like, macro positions around geographical regions. Uh, we've, we try very hard to make sure there are no macro calls within the portfolio. We think it's very easy to get those wrong. We're very focused on stocks and we have a lot of stocks. Uh, one of the main ways of limiting the damage when you get things wrong is to have a small stock position. It's a, it's a self-evident mathematical, it's not a very interesting point, but it's a quite a powerful point. One of the aspects of having smaller weightings in a portfolio is when you make a mistake, it is easier emotionally to deal with that. So we have a very tight set of controls around us. We think we have a very rigorous quarterly cycle. If a company does not still fit its original investment case, we will move on and sell that stock. We have a stop loss in place, which is basically tells us if a stock starts underperforming by more than a certain amount relative to the local index, whatever we think about the stock, we will sell it because basically the market's telling us we are wrong. And finally, I suppose, is all the stocks in the portfolio, and we typically have about 200 positions in our long-only portfolio, they are all equally weighted. And they do not, if you like, they're, they're, not, they're not a specific idea attached to a fund manager. We have a team approach where we break down the decision-making between all the fund managers. It is very collaborative the way we approach our decision-making. We all understand the investment process. We're very clear about the moving parts that operate it, but there is no sense of someone owning an idea because I think that is dangerous because someone gets emotionally attached to a stock and they are reluctant to sell it when things start to go wrong. So we have a lot of stocks. They're tightly controlled around the, the shape of the global index. And the stocks are equally weighted. We have one or two other specific controls like a stop loss, and as I say, the power of equally weighting, I think, is important in terms of making sure that you are realistic about what you do when things go wrong. So it doesn't make for a very exciting looking portfolio, if I'm being honest. It tends to grind along. But if you have a bit of patience and are prepared to wait, it tends to do OK. 
Well, th thank you, Ben. I, I think you've outlined a very interesting and exciting and, and unique investment process that you've adopted through through your experience. And, and I'd just like to finish by saying thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and outline how behavioral behavioral finance makes its way into your investment process. Thank you, Bill. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I hope you all found that as interesting as I did. And just to summarize a few key takeaways, you can't trust CEOs, so don't talk to them. Look for companies where those CEOs perhaps aren't able to take additional risk. And then look for companies where investors are overestimating the risk or analysts are underestimating the potential for continued growth. Our Devra do manage the Ned Group Investments Global Behavioral Fund for us. So if you've enjoyed what you heard today, please get in touch with us at Negroup Investments. Otherwise, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us and I'll hand back now to Amy Janssen. Hi, thank you so much, Rob. I, I don't know about you, but I find it so refreshing to hear an investment manager talking about how they embed fallibility at the heart of their process. Uh, it's one of the, the exciting things about human progress is that, as we've seen in science, when we're willing to be wrong, it allows us to be right more often. So I found that fascinating. And also you see the connection with the earlier talks in terms of how individuals interact with the conditions around them. So like with the CEOs, how they, they can get chastened by the conditions and then they make better decisions. So, so a fascinating investigation of how this all comes together in investment decision-making that I, I hope you've all found interesting. If there has been anything today that has piqued your interest and wanted you to take action, one of the things that we in behavioral economics are particularly obsessed about is what we call the action intention gap, which is that we intend to do lots of good things and then we don't follow through. So I definitely encourage you if there's anything today where you thought I would like to do that or change that or try that, write it down, put it in your calendar, create a reminder and you can make it happen. We are also going to be popping a QR code up on the screen. All you have to do is scan it. It's one of the beautiful things about technology. It'll take you straight to the survey. If you just give us the quick and dirty answers, it'll be done in under 30 seconds. If you do take the time to take a minute or two more and give us more feedback about what you loved, what you didn't love, and what you'd like to see next in terms of how we're exploring this space, it's deeply appreciated and we do read all of it and take it very seriously. And then if you're already excited for your next potential event with us here at Ned Group Investments, our next event is on the 6th of April. It is the Balanced Perspective with Ian Power. And if you'd like more information about that or any of the things in terms of, of keeping up to date, have a look at our LinkedIn page. We keep a lot of content there and you'll also see more content relating to this event coming out as it is available. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and we hope that you invested your attention wisely this morning. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.